Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Consciousness Review. I'm Miriam Knight, and our guest today is Daniel Unterbrink. He's a retired forensic auditor whose passion is the true story behind the origins of Christianity. By applying his analytical skills to the actual historical data from the time of the New Testament, he has developed his own unique narrative, and his conclusions challenge the traditional interpretation. His first book, Judas the Galilean, suggested that the historical Jesus was not the Jesus of Nazareth depicted in the Gospel, but rather the historical figure of Judas the Galilean. He followed this with two further books, New Testament Lies and The Three Messiahs. And today we're going to discuss his new book, Judas of Nazareth, which ties it all together and adds really quite significant insights into the writing of the Gospels, as well as to the life of Paul. Welcome, Dan. Well, it's good to be here. Well, I must say I have had quite a ride reading your book. Um, it, it was very challenging, very fascinating, and I think our readers are going to have some mind-expanding time with, with us today. So let's start by, I would like to know when you became interested in biblical history. Okay, I, I essentially grew up uh, Roman Catholic, but I didn't really become interested in religion uh, until I was about 20 years old. And then I, I actually became involved with a uh, fundamentalist group. So I, I, I was, uh, to say the least, I was a bit obsessed. And all I did was read the Bible over and over and over again. And after a couple of years, I, I started uh, getting into commentaries and reading the history so over the last 20, 25 years, I've spent more time thinking about the history and, and other people's views of what went on as opposed to just looking at the Gospels themselves. So um, my whole, life, my whole uh, interest in Judas the Galilean really came a, a bit by accident because at one point I was looking at the birth narratives of Jesus of Nazareth and Matthew and Luke. And one was the one in Matthew is in 4 BC, and the one in Luke was in 6 AD. So I'm thinking, you know, you know why, why the why the difference? So I went to Josephus, who was a Jewish historian of the time, and I read what was going on at both times. And there happened to be a character named Judas, Judas the Galilean, who was involved in 4 BC in a uh, a. a, a temple cleansing, and of which there was a prisoner release, like a Barabbas prisoner release right afterwards. And then in 6 AD, he was involved in a census uh, tax uprising against Rome. So, so you know, the, the two birth narratives for Jesus actually fit in perfectly with the two most important parts of Judas the Galilean's career. So that got me interested and after that, I just started uh, looking at everything related to Judas the Galilean, his movement, all his disciples, throughout the, the pages of Josephus, and noticed a striking similarity to the things that we read in the New Testament. Mm -hmm. So it was, I kind of I kind of just stumbled upon it, and then I once I found it, I, I kind of you know looked at everything I could on the subject. You, yeah, you expanded into a bunch of other primary texts. Um, what were those? 
Um, the primary texts are uh, Josephus, who is the Jewish historian of the time. Uh, you've got Tacitus and Suetonius, who were uh, second century Roman writers, and they both mentioned uh, Christians of the first century. And then you had Pliny, who was also the same era of uh, Tacitus, but he's talking about uh, Christians of his time, which is in 120. AD. So you've got three or four different uh, ways of looking at the data. Plus, you have the writings of Paul, who were you know the earliest writings of all. And at least four of the texts, almost everybody agrees on, and that's First uh, and Second Corinthians, Galatians, and Romans. So I've kind of stuck to the text that everybody agrees on as being you know original to Paul, and I've uh, used him as a primary text also. And I've, unlike most people, I've used the Gospels as a secondary source. For instance, if there's something in the Gospels that uh, is similar to what's in Josephus' writings, I'm looking at the actual historical point being from Josephus. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but by having it uh, also in the Gospels, it makes me uh, pretty pretty sure that it, this what was in Josephus related to the Christian movement. So, and to complicate things, you also have this Slavonic Josephus. What's the relationship right. between those two? Okay, the Slavonic Josephus is a most be, it's uh, a Russian document, uh, probably written sometime in the Middle Ages, tenth, eleventh century or so, and uh, primarily it's a Reader's Digest version of uh, Josephus's War of the Jews, which was written in uh, 75 A.D. Uh, there were like 13 passages, though, that I put in the book that uh, talk about the Christian movement. And they talk about John the Baptist. They talk about the Wonder Worker or Jesus. Uh, they, they talk about uh, uh, lots of things that relate to the New Testament so it was interesting to compare those, those uh, passages to what we have in the Gospels. And I've done that when I, when I examined the uh, book of Matthew. So, uh, and I didn't use the Slavonic Joseph as a primary source. I used it as a secondary source similar to the Gospels. Mm-hmm. And I, they, I would say if, if they agreed with Josephus, the original Josephus, then it was it was uh, kind of confirmation of what Josephus was saying. Mm-hmm. So I didn't really develop my ideas on that, but they these Solani Josephus kind of supports what I'm saying. Okay, now give us a sense of the political climate of the time and who were the main players. Okay, the main players. Uh, number one, you've got the Romans, who are like in sixty, right around sixty BC. They uh, are essentially the rulers of Judea at that point. The, uh, the rulers of Judea uh, invited them in, and once you invite a great power in, you know, you, you can't really tell them to leave. So they were there. They were entrenched. And they ended up uh, appointing their own client kings to uh, rule Israel. And that's where Herod the Great comes in. Herod the Great was the first king that Rome appoints 
to be the ruler of, of Israel. And he ruled for like 30-some years, and then some of his uh, sons and his relatives, Agrippa I, who was his grandson, ruled, and he was probably as powerful as, as Herod the Great, but it wasn't until uh, 37 to 44 that he was in charge. So essentially from 30-some B.C. until 70 A.D., the Herodian movement was essentially the ruling class. And they also appointed the high priest, so there was a lot of money in the temple. Uh, you know, you can imagine the hundreds of thousands of pilgrims coming there, and if you control the temple and all the eating arrangements and the lodging, and you have your, your hands into everything, they were just collecting huge amounts of money from the people. And that's, you know, one reason why you see uh, in the Gospels Jesus upset because of the corruption that was involved with the, the temple. So you have, you have the Romans, you have the Herodians, those are the ruling, uh, those are ruling the, uh, the people, and then you have an opposition movement, and that's called the Fourth Philosophy by Josephus. The other three philosophies were the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the Essenes, and I think a lot of people have some familiarity with those, but the Fourth Philosophy was uh, developed by Judas the Galilean and his partner, Sadek, who I claim is John the Baptist and uh, also Robert Eisenman, also from a different way of looking at it, also claims the same thing. Um, and Robert Eisenman is another biblical scholar? Yes, he actually got the Dead Sea Scrolls released to the public. Robert Eisenman, I would say, would be one of the top, if not the top, biblical scholar of our time. You know, he, he is something else. He puts more information on one page of his book than most, most people will put in an entire book. It's just whether or not you can ferret everything out of it. It's, it's very, very, uh, he, he knows this stuff. Let's put it that way. Mm -hmm. But anyway, you had the fourth philosophy, and that's developed by Judas the Galilean. And it, from like probably 4 B.C. at the Golden Eagle Temple Cleansing, all the way till 73 A.D., where uh, the Jews are killed at Masada. That was the, the leader there was Judas the Galilean's uh, grandson. So for like 70 years, 70 to 80 years, that movement was an opposition movement that challenged not only the Herodians but Rome itself. So it, it, you can imagine, you know, sometimes things would flare up, other times things would be much calmer. But over the 70 years, there were things that happened that uh, riled the people up. And, and uh, towards the end, you actually had an actual war with Rome, mm -hmm. which essentially destroyed the, uh, the Jewish uh, nation along with the, what I call the G Jewish Jesus movement, which were the original disciples of Judas the Galilean. They were pretty much all slaughtered by the end of the war. Now, what was it that Judas the Galilean was preaching and doing? Okay, he preached, uh, essentially, Josephus said he was a Pharisee, so he, he preached much of the same things as the other Pharisees. He also incorporated a lot of teachings that were uh, associated with the Essenes. For instance, uh, communism, pure communism. Their disciples uh, shared everything in common. And also, if you read the book of Acts, you get that same sense from the idea, I think, in Acts 2, 
where all the uh, believers had held everything in common. They, they all, you know, that was to them, that was the kingdom of God, is to, uh, to, to share with one another. You couldn't love your neighbor as yourself if you saw that neighbor hungry or not clothed or housed. So the whole idea was to share. Okay, so they did preach that. They also preached uh, a, a nationalism, which was very popular with the common man because uh, paying taxes to uh, Rome was not a popular thing in Judea. So Judas uh, combined his own particular religion with this nationalism, and people followed him. You know, the rich didn't like him because, he, you know, it's like even in the Gospels, Jesus talks to the rich young ruler, and the rich young ruler says, I follow all the uh, um, commands, now what do I need to do? And uh, Jesus says, uh, sell all you have and give to the poor, then come follow me. And that the rich young ruler went away sad because he wasn't about to give his money away. So you can imagine rich people being confronted with this type of a message that essentially let's share this this is the new kingdom of god coming you know it's very very revolutionary and Indeed. by the way not too many people today would would want to follow that either <laughs> now where did uh, saduk or or john the baptist come into it okay now the traditional story of john the baptist has him coming on the scene about 28, 29 A.D., okay? And within a year or so, he's beheaded by uh, Herod Antipas. Okay, so according to the gospel story, he's only on the scene for like a year or two at most, okay? And and the gospels also say that he was uh, beheaded before Jesus was crucified. So you look at this figure, John the Baptist, in the writings of Josephus, and Josephus has John dying, being put to death by Herod Antipas in in 36 A.D., which would have been after the death of Jesus of Nazareth. Okay? So right there, there's a problem. Then Josephus doesn't mention when uh, he comes on the scene, but he does mention a character named Sadduck, which means righteous one, and John preached a baptism of righteousness. So uh, this is one reason why Robert Eisenman has equated uh, the Sadduck with John the Baptist. But the Sadduck came onto the scene in 6 A.D. So for 30 years, from 6 A.D. to 36, John the Baptist, or Sadduck, uh, was a figure, a very important figure in first century Judea. Okay, he was the second in command to Judas the Galilean. Uh, One thing that most scholars and most uh, church people do not realize, uh, John the Baptist, when he was put to death, was put to death by Herod Antipas because John controlled the masses. He controlled the people. And Herod had him put to death because he was afraid that he was going to lead a revolt. So this shows how much power John, John the Baptist had in 36 A.D., which is totally eliminated in the Gospel account. You don't see that in the Gospels. Essentially, in the Gospels, he's arrested, and that's it. He dies, and 
uh, Jesus and the disciples go on afterwards. So you have, according to Josephus, he's, uh, Sadik is introduced in 6 AD, John the Baptist dies in 36 AD. The Slavonic Josephus is consistent with Josephus on the death of John in 36. Okay, so that confirms what Josephus is saying. But the, uh, the Slavonic Josephus introduces John the Baptist in 6 AD, right before the introduction of Judas the Galilean, which, again, is incredibly fascinating when you consider uh, uh, what that would mean, that the, not only was Jesus on the earth a lot longer than the one to three years, or Judas the Galilean, but John the Baptist is around for at least 30 years. Mm-hmm. So these guys were important fixtures of first century, and they did more than just preach for a couple of months or whatever. They were there for a generation and a half, you know, before, you know, they're both uh, killed. Mm-hmm. So much, much different reading of history than the Gospels. The other thing that I found so relevant or important about John the Baptist uh, and and Jesus is that they were preaching um, personal responsibility and righteousness. Right. That well, to them, following the law, the Torah was of utmost importance. Now, again, uh, you know, loving the Lord your God and loving your neighbors as yourself are important, but they also tie in to following the law and righteousness. So they were essentially saying, you're not, you're not forgiven like what Paul said by just believing. They said that you pretty much had to be instead of just believe. Okay, you had to be a, 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 a certain type of person, which is totally different than what current day Christianity teaches. And you get that same feel if you read the book of, uh, of James. Uh, James has the same philosophy as what you would have found in, with Judas the Galilean and John the Baptist. Essentially, that uh, anyone can believe. He said even the demons believe. But uh, it, it, only belief becomes uh, truly uh, important is when your actions go hand in hand with what you believe. So totally different concept than what Paul was developing. Now, James um, was the brother of Jesus. Was, do you also equate him with the brother of Judas, the Galilean? Yeah, yeah I think James and there were other brothers of Jesus. We know that from Paul's writings. He talked about in First, in First Corinthians 9, verse 5, he talks about uh, Peter and the brothers of the Lord. So, yes, I think that uh, the, the historical Jesus was Judas the Galilean, and his brothers were James, and I think the other brother, one of the other brothers' name was John. There was a James and a John. And then uh, the, the pillars, according to Paul, were Cephas or Peter, James and John, and I think James and John were the brothers, and I, I explained that in the book. So it's it's a different John from John the Baptist. Yeah, John the Baptist, by the time Paul's writing uh, in the late 30s and early 40s, has been put to death. Mm-hmm. But uh, the James or John, a brother of uh, Jesus or, or Judas the Galilean, uh, was still alive. 
Right. Now, the figure of Paul does not exactly come out smelling of roses in your book. He was called Saul of Tarsus in the Gospel, and you associate him with the Saul and Josephus' writing, who was actually a relative of Herod. So tell us a bit about his life and how the Gospels um, evolved to change that picture. Okay, well, Paul, uh, first of all, you have to go into his own writings. In Galatians, the first chapter, he talks about his gospel, and his gospel was unique to him. He said he received his gospel from revelations from the risen Christ. And he says, I didn't receive it from any man, or, did, or was I taught it? So when you, start, when you sit back and you think about that, you go, wait a second. He, he's been a, when he's writing this, he's been in the movement for 20 years, but now he's claiming to have received his gospel from the risen Christ. He didn't receive it from Peter. He didn't receive it from James or any other human being. He received his gospel by revelation. I just want to clarify for the listeners that the movement in question is the fourth philosophy. So he actually became a convert and studied for three years before being accepted into that movement and then went out to preach. And he did, I think for the first, you know, part of his career, maybe the first 15 years, he was probably a good soldier and he did preach the the, uh, gospel that was set forth by uh, Jesus, John the Baptist, but somewhere in the mid-30s or so, he might have had a revelation that, hey, maybe I can uh, tailor a new message to the Gentiles. And this was happening about the same time that his cousin, Agrippa I, is palling around with Caligula and has now become uh, anointed king of, of Israel. So there's a possibility. Now, this is just a This is my conjecture that uh, either a little bit of jealousy or something, you know, with his cousin now becoming so important that maybe uh, jogged him into uh, uh, taking a different course. So his new course was to develop a new gospel for the Gentile listeners, and his Gentiles no longer had to become full Jews. They They really didn't have to follow any of the law, and all they had to do is believe in the blood of Jesus Christ. They didn't have to follow anything that Jesus or Judas the Galilean and uh, John the Baptist had taught. That was no longer important. In fact, Paul essentially said that the, the inheritance of the Jews was to be given to the Gentiles, which again would have made any of the uh, Jewish uh, followers of Judas the Galilean wild. They would have gone crazy had they known that. But then you, you kind of have to ask a question, why didn't they know that? Weren't they aware of what he was teaching? But even Paul talked about his philosophy was, to the Jews, I speak like a Jew. To the Gentiles, I speak like a Gentile. When Paul was telling or being interrogated by the Jewish leaders, I'm sure he told them whatever they wanted to hear. But what he was telling his Gentile followers was something totally different. Mm-hmm. And eventually what happens in around 44 A.D., and this is corroborated by a similar event in Josephus, Paul is removed from the movement of Antioch because they finally find out what he's teaching about the law 
and uh, I, and I don't even know if they've even found out if he was if some of the other teachings which are even more wild than that. But they uh, um, at that point they had removed him from the movement. So after 44 A.D., Paul is on his own. He's got his own little churches, but I think even then they're being hounded by the uh, the Jewish Jesus movement, which is the followers of Judas the Galilean. And, you know, Paul becomes uh, very insignificant from then until the war with Rome. And then he's referred to as the liar, isn't he? Yeah. Um, and there are like four or five passages in his own writings where he, he claims he doesn't lie. But yet uh, there were uh, certainly people going around saying this, telling his disciples that, hey, this guy's a liar. And he was also known as an enemy. And I contend that he was the actual traitor of the, of the period because he taught against the teachings. And it's, it just so happens that some really nasty things happened after he left the movement. For instance, the sons of Judas the Galilean were crucified shortly thereafter. Uh, the, the stoning of James happens in 62 A.D., and Saul is in Jerusalem, and he's giving approval to the stoning of James, which has been rewritten in Acts to be the stoning of Stephen. So the book of Acts took an event which is really an evil event because Saul is approving and actually persecuting people after the... Uh, uh, stoning of James in 62 A.D., and they're putting it back in time to 35 A.D. to before he joined the movement. In fact, this all happened after he was let go from the movement. Mm -hmm. So you get a totally different uh, picture of, of what Paul was doing. And he was, by this time, a very rich man, because I think a lot of the money that he collected went into his own pockets. You repeatedly say, follow the money. Yeah. So, well, you know, I, what did you mean by that? I think it's important uh, to look at motives and why things happen. And if you see that the motive, is, if there's a great financial gain in something, there's a good chance that that might be what leads to uh, certain actions. Uh, Paul was always telling his disciples to give money to support Jerusalem, even though he didn't himself in his gospel support Jerusalem or the Jews. But yet he was collecting money based on that. That uh, And later, as I explained, after Jerusalem is destroyed, then uh, the money still flows out to the people in charge, but it's no longer, uh, Jerusalem is no longer used as a... Uh, as a sore you know, destination for the money. Mm -hmm. so, it reminds me of the televangelists. It, it was, you know, he was way ahead of his time because he not only used himself, but he had uh, his disciples playing like good cop, bad cop. You know, they, they would go ahead of him or they would be behind him, and uh, they could be very harsh with the people, and then he could be very loving, you know, so... He used his network to uh, establish what he wanted to get out of the people, and generally it was a lot of money. Yeah. If you consider, if he had churches set up all over the the, uh, the empire, and if he's having people give money or put money away every week, and then there's a huge collection, you can imagine how much money he was 
in charge of. Mm-hmm. And then when he gets to Jerusalem, we find this character named Saul, who is now playing alongside the very wealthiest of the people in Jerusalem. So it's not too much of a stretch to say that uh, he would have taken the money for himself. Mm-hmm. Still, you have to give him uh, a certain amount of credit for tapping into the psyche of the Gentiles. Well, you know, I think he was. I think he it was a little bit evil what he did, but at the same time, he was a bit of a genius too, because what he did is he combined some of the teachings of of the historical Jesus or Jesus the Galilean, and he combined it with his own theology, which was kind of based on some of the pagan rituals of the time, which would have been incredibly attractive to the Gentile followers. You know, so he's he's teaching about drinking the the blood and eating the body of a god. He's talking about the crucifixion being saved by the blood of the God. And these are the type of things that were prevalent in the uh, Roman Empire at the time. You talked about Mithras. And then adding the history of of, uh, Israel to it. Mm -hmm. So it was was an ingenious way to to get his message across and to get money from people. Right. you talk about the um, Gospel of Mark. Who do you think wrote it? Okay, now, uh, the his- historians have said it was written by Mark, who is a disciple of Peter, or secretary of Peter. And I, I think I disproved that that could have possibly been the case. So what I, what I did is I looked at what was going on in, the, in, in Mark, is seeing that they were elements of the the framework of Judas the Galilean in that, but also a lot of the teachings come directly from Paul. You know, the idea that this Messiah figure is going around and having people following him, you know, hoping to overthrow the Roman government, but at the same time he keeps telling them that he's going to be a blood sacrifice. You know, he's going to die for their sins and this and that. And they, they don't understand them because... Historically, he never did that, but this was Paul's message. So the gospel Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, is a clever fusing of Paul's life and teachings along with the framework of Judas of Galilean. So you actually have more of Paul in Jesus of Nazareth than you do uh, the historical Judas of Galilean. Again, it, it, it was a, a, an act of genius to do it. And it's worked for 2,000 years. So you've got, you got to give the guy credit. <laughs> so you're saying that Jesus of Nazareth was essentially a literary invention to um, uh, build on the, the, the elements of the story of Judas, elements from the life of Paul, and then create this charismatic figure um, around which the uh, the Pauline religion was founded. Right, that's exactly right. And I go through, you know, point by point, improve improve my case. And 
I, I would I would challenge anybody to to read that uh, and you know and, and see what they come up with themselves. I mean, for instance, we talked earlier about Jude, or, uh, uh, John the Baptist dying in 36 A.D. and then in Mark, then it, 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 as soon as uh, Judas is off the stage, you have Jesus appearing. Now. Uh, the only person that lived beyond John the Baptist in that story really was uh, Paul. Paul comes on the stage with his new gospel right after the death of uh, John the Baptist. Not Jesus. Jesus, or Judas the Galilean, died many years before that. So that's just one example. Another can be looked at in, I think, the third chapter of Mark, where Jesus' family uh, come to take charge of him, and they say he's out of his mind. He's crazy. Now, that always bothered me because I'm thinking, well, you know, wouldn't Jesus, the Messiah's family, have been more supportive? And yet here you have these, these people coming and wanting to take charge of their this Messiah figure because they think he's crazy. Now, according to everything we know about uh, the fourth philosophy and there are also passages in the Slavonic Josephus that talk about the, uh, the brothers and the mother of Judas the Galilean, how, how close they were and how they supported one another and how they were, you know, in step with what, what's going on with the, the movement. So this was a family movement. But yet, why was that passage in Mark put in there? And the only thing I can think of which makes sense is when Paul converts from being Herodian to a member of the fourth philosophy, that his family would have thought he was crazy. That would have been like a Kennedy today becoming a Tea Partier. <laughs> you know, just you, you just can't imagine it happening. But yet, this is what happened with Paul, and that's why you know that reflects something that happened in his life, not the uh, historical Messiah. So those are just a couple examples of how Paul's life was infused. And certainly his, uh, his theology was, is placed throughout the uh, story of Jesus of Nazareth, being a uh, sacrifice for the sins of mankind. You know, the, uh, the fourth philosophy would have viewed the crucifixion of uh, Judas the Galilean as a tragedy, you know, something they had to deal with. But it wouldn't have been, you know, oh, he, he's going to save the the world, you know, the sins of mankind, because they already believed that they were in the everlasting covenant and their sins were already forgiven, you know. So there was no need for human sacrifice. And this is a thing I don't think people think about. You know, they, this it doesn't make sense, mm. the, the whole concept that's being put forward. But th the Gentiles don't realize this, and they're, they're the ones that the Gospel of Mark the Gospel of Matthew, Luke, they're the ones that uh, these the Gospels are aimed at. It's not the Jews. Now, going back to the Jewish Jesus movement, um, John was, um, it was a messianic movement. They, they really did believe um, that Judas um, was 
a Messiah. And after his crucifixion, they were kind of looking to his resurrection, weren't they? I think so. But uh, if you read through the, uh, the book of Revelation, the, the resurrected Jesus there is one that's going to destroy Rome. Okay, they still believed, and I think they held out, because if you're running a, a messianic movement and your messiah figure is put to death, it's not a very good recruiting tool. <laughs> yeah, it really isn't. But if you claim that he has been resurrected and he's going to come back to lead the movement, then all of a sudden, you know, people weren't that sophisticated. You know, they say, okay, you know, we believe in resurrection, and most of the Jews did believe in resurrection, and that they believed that he was going to come back and lead them. And that's one reason why, you know, like James, even in 62 A.D., Josephus talks about the whole, after he's put to death, the whole uh, thing unravels in Jerusalem. Because you, have, you can see that a lot of people are wanting to fight Rome, but yet James is waiting for Jesus to return. So it's like we don't want to fight Rome without the resurrected Messiah. Mm-hmm. But once he's put to death, then other elements take over, and that wing, say, wing of the zealot fourth philosophy party is no longer in control. So probably the resurrection of Jesus probably after James dies in 62 is not as relevant to what happens. You know, but it, it was a good recruiting tool. <laughs> And, and Paul used that same recruiting tool, the death and the resurrection, but he, he attached a, a pagan significance to it. So um, that, that's the difference between his teachings on the resurrection versus uh, the, the zealot teaching on it. So where was Paul around the time of the destruction, the final destruction of the temple and in, the, in 70 A.D.? Okay, this is interesting, because if you look at the last uh, seven or eight chapters of Acts, it has Paul going to Jerusalem, and he runs into problems with the the Jews there, and he's arrested. He meets with uh, Agrippa, and he is uh, there's a, a group that's going to wants to kill him, so he escapes, and the Romans uh, save him. Then he also meets with, uh, in 60 AD, supposedly uh, goes to Rome to meet with Caesar. Okay? So and this all occurs two years before the uh, stoning of James and six years before the start of the war with Rome. Now, in the writings of Josephus, the same Saul does a lot of the same things that we see in, in Acts, except the meanings are a little different and the times are different. For instance, in 62 AD, he is there supporting the stoning of James. So he's very much now with his Herodian buddies against the fourth philosophy. Okay, 66, he also meets with Agrippa as a member of a peace party who is trying to uh, get an army to uh, squash the uh, fourth philosophy there. Uh, Later, after he returns to Jerusalem, he is uh, run out of town, and is, again, the Romans save him, just like it is in the, uh, the Paul version. This is in 66. And then in 66, 67, he goes to meet Nero in Greece, not Rome, 
of his own uh, his own wish. So you have the same elements of this Saul occurring between 62 and 67 A.D. that we see rewritten in the book of Acts before 62 A.D. And that had two effects. Number one, the writing of Acts got Paul out of Jerusalem before James is murdered. Okay, because you don't want to have your great apostle being charged with murder. That's, that doesn't look good. So they get him out of there, and they have him meet Nero in Rome before the great fire of Rome where Nero slaughtered the Jewish Christians there in 64. In reality, Paul or Saul is there in, in uh, Jerusalem when James is murdered, and he also meets with uh, Nero after Nero had uh, punched his, his wife and his pregnant wife in the stomach and aborted their child and killed his wife. He did that, plus he had murdered all the Jewish Christians, according to Tacitus in 64. So you have this guy meeting, rubbing elbows with uh, uh, Nero. You know, So the rewrite in history is a total, complete whitewash of what really went on. And this is one reason why all the politics has been taken out of the New Testament uh, the, the Gospels and the Book of Acts, because if you put the politics in and what really happened, it does not look good for Paul. Mm. He was doing things that you wouldn't even consider doing. So Paul was also an apologist for um, the establishment, uh, exhorting the populace to pay their taxes, for example, whereas the historical Jesus or, or Judas was actually fomenting rebellion against this unjust collection of taxes. Right. Totally different. So uh, in Romans chapter 13, Paul Essentially, this is, when he wrote this, is in the era of Caligula. He's saying that the, the uh, people that have been put in charge are agents of God. Now, that's like saying, you know, Hitler was an agent of God. Or, you know, Caligula was crazy. You know, this guy was, was just one of the most horrible people in the history of the world. Yet Paul is saying, Be, you know, follow these people. They're put in charge by God and you pay your taxes and be good citizens. Okay, that's kind of the Herodian line. Be good citizens and pay your taxes. Uh, in the Gospels, which is funny because according to uh, Brandon, the, uh, the idea of uh, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God, according to Brandon, that's a zealot saying. But yet people today look at that as saying that Jesus endorsed paying taxes to Rome. But that's not what he was saying. In essence, Jesus, or I say Judas the Galilean was saying, was he said, give me a coin. Whose picture is that? And it was a picture of the emperor. And he says, okay, give to Caesar what is Caesar. So essentially is saying, uh, Caesar, take your money. He says, give to God what is God. And what is God's is the holy land and all the possessions. So he's saying, essentially, is take your money and get out, mm -hmm. which was a very revolutionary statement. And it's no surprise that after he would do that, they would look for ways to put him to death because he is stirring up a revolt there. 
you know, hmm. and they did put him to death. They they crucified him. So fast forward to present day. Um, how do you think your theory affects? Well, how does it affect your view of Christianity? Well, my view, and I think a lot of people's view, is that it's important to be a good person, or as John the Baptist would have said, you know, follow righteousness. If you are a good person, if you're helping the poor, if you're, you know, always uh, being kind to people, that was the essence of what uh, the Messiah was, was teaching. And there are a lot of people, I don't care what their theology is, that follow that. So, you know, I, I think most people that do that are good people, you know, are not going to have a problem with my book. The people that might have a problem are the ones that exploit other people in the name of religion, or if they say, oh, I'm saved and it doesn't matter what I do. Those are the people I think are going to be on the out, because I don't think that has anything to do with the original uh, uh, movement by Judas the Galilean. And John the Baptist. I think they wanted people to actually follow God's law. To them, you know, again, we're not going to be able to follow the, the law unless you become Jewish. But, you know, to most people, uh, just being a good person is, is probably as important as anything else. You're essentially fulfilling what uh, the original Messiah was talking about. It, it seems to me that Paul's essential attraction to the Gentiles or for, uh, for the Gentiles was that he provided an almost magical means of achieving um, immortality or, or, you know, paradise. Right. Um, when you look at the picture you paint uh, of the historical Jesus, um, it kind of brings it into today's uh, consciousness of connection, of goodness, of righteousness. Um, do we lose the mystery here? Um. Yes and no. You, you, you lose the magic. The magic part's gone. But the mystery and, and the wonder, I think, may be even increased. And let me give you one example. When, when Jesus feeds the 5,000, now the magic there is that bread and fish are created out of thin air. That's the magic. The mystery or the, the, uh, something that's really important, the real teachings behind it are very different. Consider uh, a great preacher going out on the hill and you have people running out to see that person. And I'm going to give you two examples of people that would run out to see him. Myself, I would run out and I wouldn't think about what I was going to eat the next meal or the next day or whatever. And then my mother, on the other hand, who that's all she that's all she would have thought about is how am I going to feed people? So she would have packed food, I would have just run out. So you have all these different people going out to to, to see this great teacher, and when they, they uh, the disciples say how are we going to feed all these people, Jesus essentially said, uh, give me what you have, and he shared it with people. So everybody saw this example, and those that had brought food shared with everyone else. So you see, 
the mystery or the great miracle of this was not hocus pocus, you know, I created all this. The great miracle was that people now were sharing with one another. Even people they didn't know they were sharing. And these were not rich people. They shared out of their, their poverty, essentially. So, you know, that was the miracle. And, you know, it, we have to look at everything in the life of Jesus on the lines of that. What did it really mean? What did he really say? I mean, this, this uh, hocus-pocus stuff probably didn't happen. But uh, the miracle, you know, the miracles can still be there. Indeed. Indeed. Well, I'm afraid that brings us to the end of our interview. We've been speaking with Daniel Underbrink, the author of Judas of Nazareth, How the Greatest Teacher of First Century Israel Was Replaced by a Literary Creation. Daniel, thank you so much for being with us today. Well, thank you. This interview, along with thousands of books and films, reviews and interviews, will be found on our website, ncreview.com. Now, next week, our guest will be Daniel Parmigiani. His book, The Magnificent Truths of Our Existence, Unlock the Deeper Reality That Guarantees Permanent Happiness. Do join us. And now we're going to close with our track of the week by James Twyman from his CD of prayers. It's the Christian prayer.
Christian Prayer by James Twyman from his album of 12 prayers set to music. I'm sure you recognize the beautiful prayer of St. Francis. James Twyman, also known as the Peace Troubadour, is the founder of the Beloved Community, a network of spiritual peace ministers around the world. He's the best-selling author of 15 books, including Emissary of Light, The Moses Code, and The Barn Dance. He's also a filmmaker. His films Indigo and Redwood Highway are very impressive. He founded the Beloved Community, a network of spiritual peace ministers around the world, and his website is James Twyman, T-W-Y-M-A-N dot com. Well, that's our show for today. I do hope you'll join us next week. Until then, I'm Miriam Knight for New Consciousness Review. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.